0: Welcome back, everyone. This is Manuela with the Andrews Family Fund. We are here for our final part of the conversation with George Galvis, Executive Director of Courage, Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice, and Eric Segment of Native Americans in Philanthropy. We're so glad you're tuning in and listening to Out of the Margins.
1: Trying to police your way into public safety is somewhat of an oxymoron. It's like trying to bomb your way into peace. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. And, you know, some of the the real um, brilliant
0: innovations that you just shared right now, right? Having emerged from communities, from young people. I just want to lift up that, like, these are, like, really powerful um public um, solutions. They're public system solutions. They're governance solutions. They're um, available. And maybe they're just about applying them from one field to another to really get us in the business of protecting and and supporting communities and young people. Um, And some of them actually emerge when you have a strong infrastructure that's people and community-centric. And so I'm curious, like, Eric, in your work in philanthropy, like, how do you get funders and, um, to understand that our job is to resource um, the creation of these types of social justice infrastructures, of this type of community power? Like, what are some of the opportunities and gaps that you're seeing in this moment? And do you have any advice for philanthropy about how to move in this moment?
2: Yeah, well, I think the field is way behind in this. So I, it's actually, I think, one of the biggest tasks we have, at least as an organization and with our our partners in the change philanthropy coalition that are advocating for um, other communities of color um, you know everything that george said is exactly it i mean we we've been here before and we know what's changed in the past and the only way that we're going to be able to hold major systems change accountable is through long-standing sustained grassroots organizing infrastructure we have a lot of lessons um, from a lot of communities in this space Um, And, you know, this moment is really powerful, but if we don't invest in the community leaders who are developing exactly those solutions and the organizers who are going to get those across the finish line, not just as policy, but all the accountability mechanisms that um, George was discussing, then we've lost that moment. Um, You know, I, I cut my teeth as a queer youth organizer when I was in high school and um you know a lot of what i've carried into my own work um even with native youth leaders is uh the safe schools movement was uh very uh well infra- it, the infrastructure behind the safe schools movement for lgbt youth back in the 90s and beyond uh was really strong we had gay straight alliances in every school practically i spent most of my time like running around rural washington state just trying to find you know the one out queer kid who wanted to start one and and then to figure out who were all the allies and here's you know a road map for how it's happened in other places and let's talk about the kind of policies you need at your school to make this a more inclusive environment and to push back on a very strong right-wing agenda um, there are so many other examples of this um, in in uh, black student organizing in the 60s and you know you name it um, a lot in, in native communities in the 70s Um, But we need that infrastructure and that's not going to happen unless philanthropy really, really changes its entire mindset around organizing. It's a very small number of funders. have always appreciated our partnership with AFF and many of the others you mentioned, because unfortunately you're some of the only ones truly investing in this work and you're the only ones actually giving dollars and saying to community leaders, you need to do what you need to do with these dollars um, so that we see that change. The last thing I'll say is I've spent most of my life in policy and, you know, uh, so much of this uh, policy work is going to be everything George just described. It's going to be a lot of local work. It's going to be a lot of relationship building. And anyone who spent any time at a state house during a session, you realize how the deck is stacked against you if you don't have dollars going into organizers like George and all the people he works with um, who are down there keeping an eye on hearings, building relationships with people. It's 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 a pretty, um, you know, hustle. it's a hustle, to be quite honest. And um, we need as many people in as many state houses and county, you know, hearing rooms as possible if we're really going to actually hold all of these different elected officials um, accountable. The last thing I'll say is when you look at the dollars invested in a lot of other places in philanthropy and the amount of unbelievable work and progress that comes out of just a few dollars in the grand scheme of things going into grassroots organizations across the country, you're going to get a huge return on your investment when you actually see the systems change come through. So we're going to be spending a lot of our time Um, really trying to lift up as many community voices as possible. Um, But also, I just really appreciated all those specific kinds of solutions George is highlighting because those are happening all over the place. And that's the next piece of this, right? You know, because a lot of the public's going to say, well, what do we do when we dismantle the police department? Well, you know, we need those specific solutions and we need um, grassroots advocates ready to roll. And so, you know, philanthropy has a big role to play with that, but it usually just means writing checks to community organizers.
0: I appreciate that. Go
1: ahead, Joyce. I wanted to kind of just jump into and say that um, what gives me hope right now, what I'm inspired by, is by the young people, um, in particular. Um, just you know, last Monday, uh, a week from yesterday, um, we had probably about twenty thousand young people just organically hit the streets, beautifully, powerfully, um, and it was you know, children, youth, and families. There were strollers. And um, somewhere in the afternoon, our Alameda County Sheriff decided he was going to impose a curfew that no one was notified about. And our mayor decided that she was going to rubber stamp that curfew. And maybe an hour before the curfew even was held, the one that no one knew about, uh, our our police department and, uh, and, and, and other coordinated agencies with them, other law enforcement agencies such as the CHP, the uh, sheriffs, um, You know, as well as they've been, you know, they have these sort of agreements with other neighboring police departments. So because Oakland has been oftentimes seen as an epicenter for activism, we have people all the way from the Central Valley uh, policing our areas as well. And so um, they attacked our young people an hour before that curfew even happened, the one that no one knew about, the one that was probably, you know, that we would deem to be uh, unlawful and constitutional, right? And um, my daughter was shot. With rubber bullets, her body was bruised, our young people were tear gassed, uh, arrested, and cited. And um, our mayor denied that anyone was hurt, that there was any police violence, but we have the video, we have the photos, and we organized an action that Wednesday, you know, uh, as the adults as the parents to say that we're going to put our bodies on the line in defense of our children, and we're going to define this curfew that we consider to be racist. And the only motivation for this curfew is to really um, undermine the movement and the mass mobilization and the moral outrage that's being reflected on the streets and nothing else. And so uh, we organized and excuse my language. I don't know if you guys, you know, it's not radio, it's podcast, but the name of our action was Fuck Your Curfew. You know what I'm saying? And um, we had 5,000 people and it turned into a block party. We took over right in front of the city hall, the intersections of 14th and Broadway. And I organized the indigenous solidarity action for black lives, you know? And we opened up and you know, my bro, Manny Larris from All Nation Singers and his family, he brought his wife and his daughters you know they opened us up with that jingle dress dance that i described earlier that's been happening in so many other solidarity actions we had our aztec dancers come out like maybe 40 of them out there dancing hard putting prayers out for the people you know and um, it was really beautiful and it was really powerful and the very next day those curfews got lifted now that curfew was a small victory but what i say is that all of that was born out of young people and you know the biggest indigenous movement moment in my life so far, like, you know, for my elders, like my aunties, uncles, it was like things like Alcatraz, you know, Wounded Knee, you know. For us, it was Standing Rock, right? And what a lot of people, unfortunately, outside of our community don't know is that that came from Native youth. It was Native youth in those areas who began to organize because of the epidemic, I would say maybe the pandemic of Native suicide. In Indian country. And as a result of that, some of the adults, you know, and it really began with some of the young adults who were mentoring these youth who began to teach them their culture. Me and Eric have both spoken about the importance. You know, you, you don't really know where you're going unless you know where you've been, is what my elders tell me, right? And, you know, what we believe is that every young person is a blessing and every young person has a sacred purpose. Our communities, our tribal communities, and many of our folks, even in the urban communities, have been so isolated that they haven't been able to connect to that sacred purpose, because a long time ago, we had rites of passage to help guide people into responsible adulthood to find that. We had ceremonies, you know, on Bleche, crying for a vision, and other ceremonies for them to be able to pray on the hill or other ways in their tradition to to find that sacred purpose. And because of that culture side, which is translated into very much a genocide, you know, we have this pandemic of, 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 of suicide among our youth but they were getting empowered by learning their culture and understanding the political issues impacting their people. And they organized a spiritual run. And that's what re the Ochete Shikawan and that's what really gave birth to the, you know, to the awareness around No Dapple and, um, and the movement in Standing Rock. It came from young people. And so time and time again, I just wanna say it's the youth who lead. They're what gives me hope. They're what inspires me. And, um, and just, you know, hearing my brother Eric also talk about, you know, c- cutting his teeth, you know, in uh, queer youth organizing, you know, who I'm also really inspired to is our trans relatives, man, they've been unapologetic, unbroken and uncompromising, you know what I mean, and it's so powerful to see, you know, and that's what we need to take a lesson from, you know, our two spirit trans relatives have been unapologetic, unbroken, and uncompromising, and that's what we need to emulate in this moment right now so that it doesn't become watered down and co-opted. So I just wanted to say that much.
0: I wanna thank you, George, for reminding us um, what it looks like day in and day out for young people to lead us, not only now, but historically. Um, what it means that our babies have to endure additional brutality, tear gas, all of the things in this moment. And, you know, I would, I would, I would ask you, like, what do you want to say to foundations that are sitting on millions and billions of dollars of assets and still only spending their five, 7% in this moment? What do you want to say to them?
1: Well, first I'd like to put them in a headlock. No, I'm kidding. Um. Um, You know, philanthropy, bless your hearts. You you all mean well, and some of you, I think, are really, really get it. Like I have many friends of mine who have come from organizing that are now working as program officers. I see some of you, you, Manuela, you know, I've met you as a program officer, and now you've been elevated, you know, and you're leading a, a philanthropic institution, and that's wonderful. You are an anomaly. In most cases, what I see are program officers, in some cases who I think um, get it. It's at the senior executive level in many of our biggest philanthropic institutions, that there just seems to be a disconnect. You know, well-intentioned folks, but they're just very out of touch. And I think part of the problem is the way that philanthropy reproduces capitalist uh, models and that they look at um, their grant making as investments and they don't wanna make what's considered a risky investment. They're so risk adverse that, you know, if you're not willing to take risks, then there will never be change. All you're gonna do is become considered stewards of the status quo. And so that I think is the biggest challenge is we need philanthropy to actually be bold, unapologetic, unbroken and uncompromising, just like we need to be on the ground right now. And the other thing we need to do, you know, is we go through trends, what's sexy at the moment, you know, and I'm a part of the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color and I'm grateful for all the tremendous work that's happened. But I remember being in that space and thinking about, well, how are we talking about this gender spectrum? It's not a binary construction. How are we talking about those of us like myself who were raised by single moms and how are we supporting those mothers? You know what I mean? How are we talking about our sister, you know? And so, you know, that sunsetted and now people may jump onto whatever the new sexy thing may be at the moment. And I'm kind of sick and tired of that. Like, you know, in the words of Fannie Lou Hammer, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And what i want to say is wherever the movement may be what we need to do is fund social justice it shouldn't be that we forget about this and we focus on climate justice yes climate justice is probably the most pressing thing that's affecting all of us right now and yet it's all inextricably connected we can't talk about one without the other you know what i mean and that from a first nation perspective when we say all our relations it's because we understand the concept of being interconnected and interdependent and our movements right now have to be interconnected and interdependent and so Stop just trying to zero in on what you think is the sexy, trendy thing at the moment and trying to jump on it. And instead, look at social justice broadly from an intersectional perspective and center those who are directly impacted. You know what I mean? We have to center women. We have to center indigenous. We have to center black. We have to center queer. We have to center all those who are directly impacted. When you look at our prisons and you see who's disproportionately impacted, it's all of the most marginalized oppressed communities in our, you know, in our nation. And so um, that's who needs to be invested in, you know what I mean? So, you know, that's, that's what I would like to say to philanthropy.
0: Thank you, George. What about you, Eric? What would you like to say to philanthropy um, who's sitting on millions and billions of assets in this moment?
2: Well, George said a lot of it in a a much better way than I could. So, uh, ditto everything George just said. Um, I think, um, I I do want to, come back to, uh, you know, we're really, I think as we move forward, we're really trying to think about our own indigenous values too, and really coming back to um, the, you know, widely shared concept around all our relations and um, tribal communities, because I think, you know, one of the areas that we're hoping to really um, push for change um, within the sector is to Uh, build as much power between those networks as possible. Um, So we're going to be doing a lot of work to um, strengthen our, our Native Program Officers Working Group, Um, As I mentioned, we're gonna be building this new native youth leadership team. Um, We're working with tribes themselves who have philanthropic arms um, to really help get them uh, in a stronger position to advocate in the sector. Um, I think there's a lot of powerful potential work to happen between grassroots advocates on the ground and those working within the sector who understand this at, at all levels, because I completely agree. I think one of the most important things that we need to do is to see some serious shifts in executive leadership. Um, I think, you know, boards of trustees and a lot of others we know because we see the decisions happen um, when we change those systems of power at the top. And so I think one of the things we're hoping to do is to really be a facilitator between organizations like George's and many others, and then those who get it Um, and and especially those who come from our communities and who, you know, were organizers in a former life, uh, so that we can really think through, you know, what are the best ways that we can bring that power together. Um, I think there's some, you know, there's some really hopeful things going on. We've got, I think one of the things that I've been really excited about having worked across the native nonprofit sector for a while, both at the local and the national levels, there's a lot of young new leadership coming up. And just going back to this very important theme about about our young people, um, you know, that sort of Standing Rock generation, that generation that was working directly with President Obama through Generation Indigenous, and so many other things, has it has a light under it. And I think it's, there's so many ways that young people are running for office right now. They're starting to emerge as new leadership in their tribal councils. You're seeing them run for all kinds of municipal um, offices. And our nonprofits are starting to really see a, an emergence of new leadership. And I think that fresh vision is going to help us really rethink how we start to challenge these um, institutions like philanthropy differently. So. Um, I think that's my cautious optimism is that I think there's a lot of power we haven't tapped into yet by really bringing our networks of our own relations together. um, With our our grassroots partners and community members on the ground, and we need to do everything we possibly can to keep building those pathways for our young leaders to take over these systems. um, Because I do believe it's possible, but they're going to need a network of support around them. I
1: appreciate
0: that, Eric. Go ahead, George.
1: Yeah, one last comment I wanted to make, too, just to kind of be maybe a little more specific um, in, in sort of the message and recommendations to our, our philanthropic partners is you know, as someone who, um, as a co founder of All of Us Are None, as a national steering committee of the formerly incarcerated and convicted peoples and families movement, I know how f- hard we fought to be able to just, you know, just. And we're punished initially for just having the audacity to wanna to speak in our own voice. And recognizing that there were people who profited from my oppression. There were folks who were able to send their kids to college, uh, pay mortgage notes. And um, you know, oftentimes I'd be invited to be on a panel and I'd be expected to come on my own time and dime and expense. And the person right next to me would be compensated because they had some letters behind their name. And guess what? I have letters behind my name too. I have a graduate degree from UC Berkeley, you know what I mean? But because I identified as a formerly incarcerated person, it was like, they didn't see that, you know? And I don't actually think my academic credentials is what actually gave me uh, validity to speak on that panel. I think it was my lived experiences as a formerly incarcerated person. And so, you know, we believe that we're the experts of our own lives. Those closest to pain are close to the solution. And I apply that in every space that I go to. If I'm in another space, I'm I'm constantly asking myself, are these the directly impacted people? How are we centering the leadership of those most impacted? And that's really what we have to do, because what I'm seeing now in this movement, fighting against police terrorism, as someone, you know, we never move without the permission of the family of someone who's been killed. There was a young person who was murdered on Saturday by the CHP. We were in contact with the family. I'll be talking to the sister after this call about some of the next steps. We organized thousands of people yesterday and, you know, to demand justice for Eric Salgado, who was shot 40 times. They shot his girlfriend, they killed, his girlfriend was pregnant, they killed the baby, and he was unarmed, and he was a suspect, but that's it, he was a suspect. It was really a routine traffic stop, and we're seeing this happen time and time again. But what I'm seeing is this pattern of, a lot of the families I'm working with and supporting, it really breaks my heart because we're asking them to come testify to the legislature we're asking to show up to the rallies we're asking to do this and there's people in nonprofits who are getting paid to be there and they're being asked to come on their own time and dime i don't think that's right it really really bothers me and it reminds me of how i used to feel as a formerly incarcerated person where i was asked to come share my story and then i was supposed to excuse myself while the grown folk talk and somehow i wasn't supposed to be involved in actually negotiating the policy remedies you know to address the outcomes and That's something I wanna be very mindful that how sometimes we reproduce systems of oppression in an anti-oppression effort. So a message in this moment, since many of us are focused on the concept of police terrorism, it's not enough to just have leadership that reflects the communities impacted. We need to center the families, those who are directly impacted, those who have joined that club that none of us ever wanna be a member of, which is, having law enforcement murder someone that you love, a family member. We have to lift them up. I'm tired of seeing them get exploited. I'm tired of seeing them show up and being asked, and they're some of the most fierce leaders out there, and support the organizations that are supporting them and building their capacity. So that's what I'd like to say.
0: Thank you, um, George. Um, our hearts and condolences go to the Sangalo family. and. We pray that the California California Highway Patrol is brought to justice for taking those babies' lives. Um, we're gonna close now, you guys. I just, um, I have to admit I'm very moved right now uh, because of the, just the fierceness and the commitment of you all and the youth organizers, Youth Cultivated who are now in multiple sectors across society. Um, Your love for all of us is astounding. And I want to thank you for taking time from your really beloved work to spread your, your jewels to people who have been told time and again and are still thinking and learning about what it means to show up boldly and courageously for our young people in whatever place we occupy. So just want to thank you and invite you to share a blessing for the young people in this moment who are out there on the front lines. Is there anything you would like to say to our young people in this moment? And then we'll close.
1: I'll just say, um, we love you. We support you. You inspire us. And we need you.
2: Yeah, and I um, I would just say um, th- that you really stand on the strength of your ancestors. We've been through so many challenges over generations, um, but we're resilient because of our young people who are leading us forward, and um, we can't get to a better future without you.
0: Thank you guys so much. Thank you, AFF grantee community. Thank you, young people. Thank you, AFF staff, AFF board, which has stood steadfastly behind our grantee partners and our staff to really do the work in the way that we need to do it right now. May the funders listening take um, Ashley Henderson's advice, the co-director of the Highlander Center, to fund communities like we want them to win. And may we all really look at the assets that we're sitting on and a huge endowment and think about what does it mean to fund communities so that we can permanently transform these injustices and fund them like we want them to win, not tomorrow, not in three years time, but start doing that now. So with that, we leave you. We want to thank everybody for listening to out of the margins podcast, and we hope to see you on the next one. Be well, everyone. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having joined us for our Out of the Margins podcast, focusing on the Native American perspective in response to global uprisings and COVID-19. We are really happy you were able to be with us, and we hope you will continue to stay tuned to Out of the Margins.